Well, this week, I believe it's likely the Lord will give you an opportunity to speak the gospel to an unbeliever this very week. If not this week, maybe next week, but it will happen. The question is, are you going to recognize the opportunity when it comes to you, and will you take advantage of it as God gave it to you? Evangelistic opportunities are not happen chance. They are given by God. The longer I'm in ministry, the more I recognize that whatever ministry you have, you didn't take it. It was given to you by God. Those are the very words that John the Baptist said when they came to him in John chapter 3 and said, you know, Jesus is baptizing more people than you are, John, trying to provoke some jealousy from him. And his response was not only humble, it was very insightful. He said, a man cannot be given a ministry unless it is given from above. It has to be heaven that grants a ministry. Well, I believe that's true even in the small ministries, those happen chance ministries where you bump into someone, bump into someone, and it's an accident, an accident. No, God gave you that opportunity. Your evangelism encounters, I believe, are orchestrated in the courts of heaven above. Think about that. You're going to go out this week, you're going to do things, and God is going to guide your steps, but he wants you to be obedient and open your mouth. We're learning together through the book of Acts, and as we're doing that, we're kind of sitting front row, you might say, in this encounter with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, this strategic African man, that he's going to have the opportunity to lead to Christ, and indeed he did lead to Christ, and we have the opportunity to learn from that. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We'll read verses 25 through 40, and we pick up in the middle of that. Acts 28, verses 25 through 40. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. (coughs) Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, he was led As a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, He preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, 
And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Well, this is an interesting passage. It really is, and there's a lot of insightful things in here. Kind of started with this last time, and we learned that this is history, but it's a holy piece of history, and these narrative, these historical narratives in the Bible are given that we would learn a lesson from them. Here, what do we learn? We learn to cooperate with God, actually, to cooperate with the Spirit of God. He will grant you opportunities to witness. You need to be obedient and cooperate with Him. It was Oswald J. Smith, a pastor in Toronto, Canada, of whom Billy Graham said at his funeral, he will go down in history as the greatest combination pastor, hymn writer, missionary statesman, and evangelist of our time. Quite a, quite a compliment coming from Billy Graham. He was the most remarkable man I have ever met, said Billy Graham. That pastor said this, the church that does not evangelize will fossilize. And coming after a creation conference, I think that means something more to us today. Evangelism is that important to God and to a local church. It is our mission to the world. It is our education of the world of things divine. Evangelism is education. It is letting them know what they don't know about God and future things and Christ and his cross and what God is doing in world history. This text here presents evangelism to us. Three movements of the gospel out from that mother church uh, in Jerusalem. Where was the first church that there ever was? The answer is not Rome, but where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the mother church, and everything is moving out from Jerusalem. Now, that first movement of the gospel we saw last time, and it was more of a systematic movement of the gospel. The gospel was being preached to many Samaritan villages. We saw that in verse 25 and covered that last time. The apostles were on their way back to Jerusalem. They just hit village by village by village. They preached the gospel in each one of them. You might say that was a more systematic approach to evangelism, and that's good. We should have the same commitment. We should have a commitment to take the gospel to surrounding communities here. Some evangelism, however, is not systematic. It comes without being planned. It's spontaneous. And so... The second movement of the gospel we started last time, and that is it was kind of unexpected. Philip was not expecting this. He got an evangelism encounter. It was an encounter created by the Lord himself. That's very obvious from the passage, and that is this. He got to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, we talked about this eunuch last time, what an interesting man he was, how he came to Jerusalem to worship, that he was very rich, that he was a eunuch, which means he couldn't procreate. He was in a special position like a minister of finance watching over the affairs of this Queen Candace, which is not the name but the title of the Queen of the Ethiopians, very powerful queens indeed. Well, we saw how the angel appeared to Philip in the midst of a very prosperous and fruitful evangelism campaign there in Samaria. The Lord gave him instructions to leave all of that, which seemed strange at the moment, and to head south. And as he headed south, he was to go on a desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza, at least the old city of Gaza. Philip obeyed. He didn't complain. He didn't say, hey, I got a great ministry going on here. He obeyed the word of God from the mouth of the angel who spoke to him. When he gets down to that region, we pick up in verse 29. If your eyes will go down to verse 29, it shows that while he's walking alongside this chariot on the road, maybe trotting along, depending on how fast the chariot was going, the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip. Verse 29, go up, join this chariot. 
Those, beloved, are definitive words from the third member of the triune Godhead to this evangelist. You know, with the ascent of Jesus Christ off this planet and back into the heavens, he told us he would not leave us alone, but he would send a comforter and a helper to be with us. Who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who came on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to the Jews and then was given also to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. He came so that he could live with believers. He could actually come and indwell in the bodies of believers. He would be there with us. He would communicate the very presence of God and Christ to us. He was there to teach. He was there to comfort. He was there to be the administrator of the church and to give gifts to the church and to empower the church for service and to give the church boldness. And here we see the Holy Spirit orchestrating and directing this entire evangelism encounter. So the Spirit of Jesus is in Philip and speaks to Philip. You will notice whenever you read about what the Holy Spirit is doing, particularly in the New Testament, you'll notice that it is the role of the Holy Spirit not to draw attention to himself. Whenever you go to these places and all they're talking about is the Holy Ghost and they're rolling in the aisles and the Holy Ghost this and the Holy Ghost that, one thing I know is they don't know the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost comes to bring attention to Jesus Christ. And when people are talking about Jesus and falling in front of Jesus and worshiping Jesus, that is where the Holy Spirit is working. In fact, Jesus said that very thing. He came into the world to glorify me. He, he said that in John chapter 15. And that's how you know the movement and the working of the Holy Spirit. Well, he's working here and he's giving Philip an opportunity to preach the gospel about Jesus Christ. Preach about Jesus. John, I'm sorry, I said John 15. It's John 16, verse 14, where Jesus said, He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He's going to take of mine and teach you all the rest that I couldn't teach you. And as he teaches you that, he's going to glorify me. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. Now, the context here, I believe, indicates that the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip in an audible voice, not a silent voice or a voice in the mind. Because I say this because God was already dealing with Philip here in a supernatural and an audible way through the voice and the guidance of the angel. An angel speaking to someone is not a quiet voice in the mind or a mystical voice. By the way, not to mention that the Holy Spirit was going to supernaturally snatch Philip away and take him to another location. So there's something supernatural going on here. Maybe even more telling than that is that the message that was given to Philip was very specific, not some general prompting of the Holy Spirit that we all get. In fact, every time as you read through the book of Acts and we encounter the voice of the Holy Spirit, or it says the Holy Spirit said, you'll find a prophet or an outside, out loud voice of some kind. You'll see this in Acts 13. You'll see this again in Acts 16. Each time it relates to a prophet, a vision, or some kind of a dream that is given, and the Holy Spirit is using those usual uh, venues of dreams and visions through prophets to speak to his people. Yet the Spirit of God does communicate to our hearts as well, even if we're not prophets, right? Even if you don't receive a dream or a vision, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not communicating to our minds and our hearts today. He does. First of all, he speaks through the Scripture, but as he speaks through the Scripture, he illumines our minds so we can understand the Scripture. Do you remember when you were an unbeliever and you read the Bible and you couldn't make heads or tails out of it, right? And then you pick up the Word of God when you have the Spirit of God inside of you and all of a sudden it starts to make sense, doesn't it? And you understand this is true and it begins to put a fire in your heart and you begin to understand how to apply it. That's not you figuring all of that out. 
That's the Holy Spirit in you. And sometimes the movement of the Holy Spirit in you through illuminating Scripture is so specific and so clear, it almost sounds like an out loud voice. There's such a prompting and such pressure on you to go talk to somebody. You're sitting around your house and this person just keeps coming up in your mind. And then you just think about them. And sometimes you're even given a dream about them. Just providentially, God allows you to have a dream to bring that person back to your remembrance. And you're praying for the person. And all of a sudden, you bump into the person, right? Guess what that is? That is God orchestrating. That is the Spirit of God moving on your heart and saying, talk, speak, give the words of life to them. That's what's happening to you. It may be that you've received promptings from the Holy Spirit before, but you chickened out. You chickened out. And don't do that. God wants to use you. And don't call on someone else to do it. God wanted to use you, right? He picked you. He's moving on your heart. Who is it you're thinking about right now that you haven't shared the gospel with? Think about them. They may be a coworker. They might be a neighbor. They might be someone you don't like. You know, someone, someone that you bump into all the time and you wish you wouldn't. Maybe God wants you to talk with them. If you're a young person, you might say, no, I'm not ready. You know something. You know something, don't you? Don't you know something about Christ? Say that. And what you don't know, don't say, well, I can't get involved in that conversation because that person's too smart for me. Get the conversation started and then go back and do more research and come back again, right? Can you give them a track? Can you give them a word? Can you give them a book? Can you assign some? Can you give them some kind of a link to a blog? Of course you can. You could do these things. You are an ambassador for Christ. God has ordained that you be obedient and open your mouth. Get past your pride. Get past the fact that you don't want to look silly or less educated. you got to speak the gospel. Open your mouth. Maybe, just maybe, they're willing to listen. You'll never know until you try, right? Sometimes when I've not given the gospel, it's because I say something like this to myself. They don't want to know. And you know what? Eight times out of ten, I'm right. They don't want to know. But there's two or three times out of ten. And I don't know when they are, right? You look at them and you say, do you know what people said about me a week before I came to Christ? There was a guy who later would disciple me. He said to his friend, he said, Tom's never going to come to Christ. I didn't look like I had any interest in spiritual things at all. There was nothing in my face, my countenance, my vocabulary, my actions the day before I came to Christ that looked like I was about to come to Christ. You can't tell. They don't come with little barometers on their head that say, this one's 65% the way there. Oh, this one's, this one's 99%. Jump on that one. They just don't. They might seem to be contradicting. They might seem to be like the, just wanting to jump all over you. They might be very close to receiving Christ. You just don't know. You are an ambassador for Christ. Kirk Cameron, what an example he has been in evangelism, right? He said, if you had the cure to cancer, wouldn't you share it? Well, if you did, not be angry at you. He said, you have the cure to death. Get out there and share it. The cure to death. You say, isn't that exaggerating? No, it isn't that we just celebrate Easter. The cure to death. The more you are obedient, listen, the more you are obedient, the more opportunities God will give you. Because Philip was a holy and willing instrument in the hands of God, he got God-given, God-arranged opportunities. You say, I never get those. Well, just start with where you are, and you'll see you will get those opportunities. So Philip explains the gospel. Look at verses 30 through 35. Notice Philip's approach in verse 30. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, 
Do you understand what you are reading? I love that approach. Do you understand what you are reading? By the way, asking great questions is a great way to lead into spiritual conversations. There's a whole book out called Questioning Evangelism that teaches you how to use questions to open people's minds to begin to get into a discussion about evangelism. It's called Questioning Evangelism. It's a great, great approach. People are always ready to tell what they believe, and it's a great way to open the conversation. So he asks, do you understand what you are reading? That means, by the way, the eunuch was reading out loud. That's how the ancients typically read. They read out loud because it aided their memory for retention. They didn't usually have books of their own, and so they would read out loud for the benefit of other people around as well. And Philip, because he knew his Bible well, he knew he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, he's reading a little portion. He's only hearing a little bit of it, right? I mean, the Old Testament is a big, big book. There are a lot of scrolls. Could have been reading from Deuteronomy. Could have been reading from anywhere, right? He recognized immediately he was reading from Isaiah. What does that tell us? If you know your Bible well, it helps you in evangelism, right? By the way, this would make a great game if someone would invent this, right? Someone starts reading a part of a verse or a verse or two verses or something like that, and the first people in the room have to guess, which book of the Bible is that from, right? I like to play that with you because I think I beat you on it. Maybe a little bit of leaked pride coming out there, but I would enjoy something like that. Maybe one of you will invent that game and patent it. I want part of the share if you get some money from that, by the way. That would be a great game. People would learn their Bible. You start to read. That's from Deuteronomy. That's from Paul. And if you could get, if they could get Philippians chapter 3, if you could get the chapter, you get extra credit also. That would be great. But he knew it was Isaiah. Now, there's no chapter headings back then, so he couldn't say Isaiah 53, but he knew it was Isaiah. He knew his Bible. And he could launch into a discussion about it. Listen, if you know your Bible well, you know what the Bible says about homosexuality. Are people talking about that out there today? Of course they are. They're talking about UFOs. What does the Bible say about UFOs? It actually might have something to say about UFOs. Yes, it might. You know your Bible well. What about dinosaurs? What about rebellious kids? They're like dinosaurs. What about... What about other religions when people ask about, what about those other religions? What about those who have never heard? What about the mistakes in the Bible? When you know and have a little bit of knowledge, that opens up the door for evangelism. What about life on other planets? You can turn conversations into witnessing opportunities because of knowledge. There was a guy at our Bible study at Bob Evans one morning when we were there, and he interrupted our Bible study, and he just wanted to tell everyone what he believed, and he just interrupted all of us. He was rather obnoxious, honestly. So I pulled him aside because I wanted the rest of the guys to continue to do their Bible study, and he was like, you know, it says in the Bible, do not judge. I said, yes, it does. Do you know where in the Bible it says that? Of course he didn't. It says in Matthew 7, and do you know what it says in John chapter 7? He looked at me like, oops, I picked a conversation with a guy that I shouldn't have it says, it says to judge. Did you know that? There's actually a command that says to judge. Now, did you know the difference between that? By this time, he was wanting out of the conversation. <laughs> My point was, if he had been open, by a little bit of knowledge, you'd be able to take people where they are, and if they're willing to be taught, you can, you can teach them. If they're not willing to be taught, you can close their mouth, and that's indeed what happened in that case. And that's, you know, better than nothing, I guess. When you study Scripture, it opens doors. When you know truth... You can blow away the smoke that other people put in front of you, and you can help them come to Christ. But you have to want this. You can't be lazy with Bible study. How many classes do we offer the first hour? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're not in one of those classes. 
But I am going to ask you in your own conscience to ask yourself, and I know there are different reasons. I'm not trying to make everybody feel guilty. Why are you not in a class like that? How many courses do we have in our Bible Institute? How many of you are not taking those courses? Learn them. Prepare. Get equipped. The Jehovah Witnesses study all day long so they can teach something false. We have the truth. Study and learn. Now, Isaiah 53 was one of those passages that Jesus had explained to his followers. This is one of the passages which in Luke 24, it says he opened their minds to understand all that the scriptures said about him. And the apostles listened to Jesus and they learned about Psalm 22 and they learned about Isaiah 53 and they learned about Psalm 16 and they learned about the other other Psalms and the other portions of scripture that spoke of him. And now people like Philip and and Stephen, who's gone on now, he'd he'd been martyred by this time, but the disciples of the apostles, they also were learning about these passages. And so because Philip had learned, he was ready to speak. And so he did speak, and he was obedient here. Now, the eunuch's response in verse 31 said, Well, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? I I love that response because he's kind of frustrated, I think, a little bit there. He's got this this scroll for himself. He's a rich guy. He has a copy of, of the Isaiah scroll, maybe even more. How did he get that? Well, he's minister of finance of a great kingdom. He's got money. He's in a chariot. He's making a long trip. He has resources for that, but not everybody has that. Maybe he's visited, maybe he was frustrated that he went to worship and he wasn't even allowed to worship in the main court because he was a eunuch. He didn't have his male member, and so he was cut off from that. And maybe now he's reading and he's still, just, maybe he's experiencing a little bit of frustration. And he's like, well, how am I going to understand this unless someone guides me? How come I'm not getting taught? I, I visited this whole way. Where's the attention that, that I'm supposed to get? Now I'm reading a little bit into that. I don't know what he was thinking. But he invites Philip in. Wow, are there some people out there that really want to be taught? Are there some people out there that they're like, I just wanted someone to explain to me what the gospel of Jesus is. Ask somebody one day. Do you, do you even know what the good news about Jesus? Well, yeah, I know it is. No, no I don't actually know. Tell me about it. What is the good news about Jesus? Do you even know what it is? And then you have to start with the what? The bad news. You say, let me tell you the good news about Jesus. There's a hell. And it burns with fire, and it's terrible, and everyone's going there. I thought you said you had good news. Then you go into the good news about Jesus, and you tell him that, right? Well, this is exciting. He has his opportunity finally. The, by the way, the angel knew Philip was going to get an opportunity for evangelism. The Spirit of God knew that Philip was going to get it. Now Philip understands why his ministry in Samaria was interrupted, right? Now he's jumping on board. He's literally leaping onto the chariot. Here was a high-ranking official from a faraway empire eager to know the scriptures and God, and he just needed an education. He needed an evangelism explanation about the Messiah of Israel as the suffering servant. This man is what we call in evangelism low-hanging fruit. You like that? when You don't have to climb a ladder to find that choice peach that's way up there, right? I'm covening peaches this day, so these days, so I'm thinking about a peach high up in a tree. But this is the low-hanging fruit. Click and eat. This is men and women that are ready to respond to the gospel, but they're not responding because we're not opening, finish it, our mouths. Now, granted, not all opportunities are like this. I remember we were going door to door. Susan and I were going door to door in Columbia, and I think it was the first or second year of the church plant, and I was getting yelled at, 
I was getting told to keep walking. I had a Muslim yell at me from the, you know, the second floor. And I was like, I'm done, you know. God brought me here, planted church. Nobody's responding to the gospel. Nobody wants to talk about it. God wants to plant this church. He can do it on his own. I'm done, God. I'm out of here. You know, I was just throwing a hissy fit. And I get back into the car, and Susan, her patient self, she's like, why don't we just pray, you know? And I'm like, I don't want to pray. I don't want to pray. I already tried. I've already been trying. God should have been there. He should have already done something, you know? So we prayed. The very next home we went to, the person was very interested in hearing. Very next home. I just needed to go one more home, but of course, I didn't want to go any further than I went. But God knows. Just pray. God will give you opportunities. By the way, I I failed to mention this. Uh, In case you read the Bible, think about Philip, and you think, that's not me. You have the same Holy Spirit Philip had. You have the same gospel Philip had. You are made of the same material Philip was made of. Ain't no difference between him and you, except he was willing. Are you willing? Now, the scripture that was used as a launching pad for this and for the gospel, verses 32 and 33, if you look at it, says, now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? Now, this is Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. It's likely he was reading from the Greek copy of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, and there are some slight differences between the Hebrew and the Greek uh, translation, but the gist of it gets through. Many of you know Isaiah 53. You've been educated around church enough that you know Isaiah 53. It's the passage on the suffering servant, the Messiah of Israel's suffering. The Jews had a hard time with this chapter. They didn't know what to do with it. Their Messiah they were told in other scriptures, was coming as the son of David to rule and reign and be victorious. So who's this guy that's suffering, that's being rejected? This can't be the Messiah, you see. So who is it? Was it, was it uh, Isaiah himself? I don't get it. Who is this guy? So this is kind of where the Jews were in their day and age. They, they, they had the prophecy, but their thinking was veiled from this. Right before these verses, 7 and 8, if you go back a little further in Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, He, whoever this he was, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. It's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah would offer himself to suffer, bleed, and die. Even hits at the crucifixion there, right? Being pierced through. And he would be a substitute a substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people, the nation of Israel. And the first part of what the eunuch was reading was all about how he was being prepared for the slaughter, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, and yet he was silent as when sheep are sheared. Jesus fulfilled this portion of the prophecy when he was arrested in the garden, and he did not speak out in his own defense. He came through the actually... Uh, two different trials and three phases of each trial. So there's like six trials that Jesus went through and he was silent before his accusers. It says that in Matthew 27, verses 12 and 14. This was his time of humiliation, which also is brought out there in verse 33. Jesus was humiliated. He was put through an unjust trial. 
That little phrase there, his judgment was taken away, is a little bit um, vague, and, and people argue about what does that mean. Some have taken it in a positive way, that, that even though Jesus was judged by men and was killed, God took away his judgment by raising him from the dead. In other words, it's a picture of Jesus' vindication. I think it's more likely that what's meant there is that justice was taken away from him in his humiliation, meaning that the trial that Jesus had to face was a farce. It was a sham. And that certainly was true of Jesus. Pilate repeatedly declared whenever he examined Jesus, what? I find what? No guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. All right? I'm washing my hands of him. His blood be on you and your own children forever and ever. He was an innocent man. Judgment was taken away from him. That is, justice was. And so the eunuch asks in verse 34, he asks Philip, please tell me. Notice the earnestness of this. He's been pondering it. He's been thinking about this. He's, he has a little bit of frustration. There's a little bit of I want to know what this is. Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? That question shows that this Ethiopian eunuch was up to date with the debates the Jews were having in the first century. This is the very question the Jews would sit around and debate. By the way, Jews love to debate, and they're very good at it. They're very good at it, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so they would do this, stroking their beards and all of that. You know what I'm saying? They would do really, really well at this. Some thought it was Isaiah. He must be speaking of himself, but it can't be him because all of this stuff never happened to Isaiah. And, and this, was, this was 700 years after Isaiah, so they knew these things did not happen to Isaiah. So Isaiah is not a very good interpretation of this. Others said that the person was actually the nation of Israel collectively, that the nation is being spoken of as a he, and the nation of Israel was going to suffer these things. But of course, again, it's spoken of as a single person, isn't it? A single person who stays silent. All of these little descriptions of him and how he scourged and everything like that, it fits a person, it doesn't fit a nation. In fact, if you look at Isaiah 53 and go home and, and read it, it's a great passage, and you look at verses 1 through 3, it shows that the nation of Israel was rejecting this person, and so the nation is distinguished from whoever this person is as well. So that's not sound exegesis either. No, the Old Testament text made it clear this was a single person who would suffer and die on behalf of the sins of Israel. A smaller group got it right and realized that in some way this was going to be the Messiah. Some people thought there'd be two Messiahs, one that would suffer and one that would conquer. Well, Philip's response comes rather quickly in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached, there it is, Jesus to him. Philip had absolutely no doubts who this verse was talking about. Now that the events in history had taken place in his day, now that these prophecies had been fulfilled down to the letter, there was no longer any doubt about who this verse was speaking about. This happened in the very lifetime of Philip and the eunuch. The interpretation of the prophecy now was clear. There was only one person in all of human history that fulfilled this prophecy, that could fulfill this prophecy, that acted out every little detail that is in here, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. And so Philip, confident, confident in the historical aspects of the gospel, he opened his mouth. And that's what you have to do. You have to open your mouth. And he preached Jesus. And that's also what you have to do. Don't open your mouth and start talking about every little book that you have read on religious themes here and there. 
Don't get sidetracked, talk about this little detail and that little detail and that little detail. Those things are springboards to bring you to talk about who? Jesus. Don't wax eloquent with all your knowledge about this issue or that issue and all the different side verses. You only use that to whet the interest to show that the Bible does talk about all these issues, but we're bringing them in here to Jesus. That's what he did. He got right to the point. He preached Jesus to him. He opened his mouth and preached Jesus. I like what Paul S. Rees, a pastor, said. The gospel is neither a discussion or a debate. It is an announcement. We are here to announce to the world that they have an opportunity to to escape the torrents of everlasting hell, to have their bodies raised from the dead, to gain everlasting life. If someone is worthy of that, they will respond to it. If they're not, your blood be on yourself. I have given you the good news about Christ. I'm moving on now to the next person. Maybe they will listen. That's our job. Boy, there's a lot of instruction in Philip's example here. If you want to get started in evangelism, as I said, you have to open your mouth. If you want to know what to do in evangelism, start talking about Jesus. You you can't evangelize without speaking and speaking about Jesus. John MacArthur notes this. Philip was knowledgeable enough in the scriptures to meet the eunuch where he was. Every believer should strive to be proficient in the scriptures so that we too can meet people at the point of their perplexity and then lead them to the Savior. It's a great quote. Notice he did not just use that scripture. It says this scripture was a launching pad to other scriptures, right? So you can use the Romans road, you know, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, you know. And then you can use that and go right on through to what what Christ did for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23, you can keep right on going. If you'll confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10.9. You can keep right on going and give more of the gospel right there from uh, Romans. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can use this and just launch into other verses. The noted scholar F.F. F. Bruce adds this, at a time when not one line of any New Testament document had been written, What scripture could any evangelist have used more fittingly as a starting point for presenting the story of Jesus to one who did not know him? It was Jesus and no other who offered up his life as a sacrifice for sins and justified many by bearing their iniquities exactly as had been written of the obedient servant in Isaiah. He didn't have the New Testament to use, so he used the Old Testament prophecies and preached Jesus to him. Brothers and sisters... If Philip could use only the Old Testament to lead someone to Christ, you have the entire New Testament. Don't you think you could lead someone to Christ? What is success in evangelism? It's not winning converts. Success in evangelism is you speaking the correct gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, as Bill Bright used to say, and leaving the results to God. You have no control over the results. You only have control over whether you open your mouth. You can't make somebody elect. You can't draw them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You can't cause them to be born again. You can open your mouth and you can speak the gospel. And that's what we're supposed to do. Well, this was a positive evangelism encounter. Because next we see the eunuch's baptism. Look at verses 36 through 38. We'll have to kind of move through this more quickly. It says in verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? 
I'm going to skip verse 37 for now. Come back to that. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. The word of God reached the heart of this man. His response was immediate, and his response was eager. The way he words this question is interesting. What prevents me from being baptized? Ever think about that? Begin to wonder, why did he ask it that way? Because this was a man that was prevented from worshiping in the temple because he was a eunuch. This is the new covenant we're under, not the old covenant. Under the old covenant, there were barriers to Gentiles. The law of Moses erected those barriers. Under the new covenant, the door is swung wide open, right? Any, and, and the apostles were learning this and figuring this out in the early chapters of apostles, but any, from any nation, any skin color, any nationality, any background can come. What prevents me from being baptized? You, you are accepted. Here was a black man. Was he wondering about that? I don't know. Can't read his mind. You are accepted. And so he asked the question, what prevents me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing. Except for yourself. If you're willing to believe, nothing prevents you from being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and joining the kingdom of God. If you're here today and you're wondering, what prevents me from being a Christian? There's only one answer to that, and that's you. You, you're preventing yourself from entering the kingdom of God. You are wanting to live your life for yourself. You're wanting to follow your own way. You're not wanting to repent and give over the rulership of your life to Christ. You are the prevention. But if you're not standing in the way, if you humble your heart, you come to Christ today, and he will receive you. And the waters of baptism are open to you. It's the surprising joy of Christianity. Wait, it's that easy? We're all allowed in? Wait a minute, you got that good news now and we're allowed to come? That's right. You're not only allowed to come, we're begging you to come. Come. Come to Christ. Believe in Christ. He is your eternal salvation. He is your present joy. He is your life. Why would you hold back from him? Of course, come. All in Christ are accepted. Are you maimed? Christ accepts you. Do you feel you're a dumb person? Christ accepts you. Do you feel you committed an unforgivable sin? Christ will forgive you. You believe you're not the kind of person that is educated enough to be a Christian? Christ will accept you. You believe you, you smoked too much marijuana in the past? Christ will accept you. You believe you came from a kind of family that did harm to the church? Christ will accept you. You're a Jew? Christ will accept you. You're a Muslim? Christ will accept you. You're an atheist? Christ will straighten you out and, ex and accept you. <laughs> Some people think the Christian message is just too good to be true, but it is that good because we have a God that is that gracious. Well, this was a desert region. Pretty amazing they found some water. Talk about God orchestrating everything. This thing could have gone on for days looking for water out there. Well, let's try that. That's nah, not deep enough. Not deep enough. You'll conk your head on that rock down there. 
Well, scholars like to point to a couple of the wadis that run through that vicinity, and they argue about which one it was, but nobody knows. What we do see here is a man eager to identify in baptism with Jesus, a man whose genuine and brand new faith instantly wanted to obey God in baptism. Don't treat baptism as something that is irrelevant. It doesn't save your soul, that's true enough, but there was no such thing as a Christian in the church that was unbaptized by water. You believe, you got baptized immediately. We try to do it as fast as we can. We just want to make sure people understand what baptism is since it's been perverted by so many different denominations. We have to take people through a little class, but as soon as possible, get people baptized. That's what it's about. I, I, I want to point out here, just with a few minutes I have remaining, that this also lets us know not only the importance of baptism, but that... Uh, the early church really believed baptism was important. Do you know that Jesus himself was baptized in water? And do you know that in the Great Commission, when he told us to make disciples of all the nations, he told us to teach them, but right along with teaching them, he told us to what? Baptize them. It's pretty important. It's a command. That's why we call it an ordinance. We even see the method of baptism here. You won't see this as easily in the English, but in the Greek, there's a term that says, they went down into the water, and they came up out of the water. Katabino. Bino means to go down. Anabino. Ana means to go up. Up out. What does that mean? They went down into the water, and then they came out both up out of the water. Why did they go down into the water? Because they were dunking them. There's no sprinkling. There's no pouring. The word baptism means submerge them. There's no debate about that. Even our beloved brethren who sprinkle acknowledge that is true. The method meant something. In fact, the early church tried as much as possible to do it in running water, and that's not required, but the moving water kind of showed that the water passes over you, it carries the sins right on down the, right on down the river and out of the way. Remember what Sam Houston said when, the, when he was baptized somewhere in one of those rivers down in Texas, and, and he said, Sam, your sins have been washed away, and he said, well, I pity the people downstream, he, because he knew how many sins that he had when he finally got baptized later in life. Living water, moving water. The straightforward reading of the text says they were dunked. And by the way, it also shows you you don't baptize yourself. We had someone come to this church once, and we asked them, we always ask everyone, have you been baptized? Yeah, I baptized myself. You don't do that. Someone else does the baptizing. Now, it doesn't have to be a pastor or an elder. Philip was an evangelist and a deacon. He does the baptizing here. We even see the order of baptism. Some people want to get baptized in hopes that one day their children will come to Christ, right? But the order is always clear. First you what? Believe. Then you are baptized. The order is always very, very clear. It's presented straight in Scripture. If you want to study a doctrine, go to the verses that talk about that doctrine. Don't go to the ones that don't talk about that doctrine. Go to the bullseye verses and let them say what they say. This is baptism. You believe, then you're baptized. So, so that's what you need to do. If you were baptized before you believed, you're not yet baptized. Because you have to believe first, then have a believer's baptism. And in that believer's baptism, it's a way of telling the rest of the world, that's what Philip wanted to do, telling the people that were in his chariot with him, that would go back to Ethiopia with him, so they would witness and see that he's being baptized. I believe. So when he arrives back in Ethiopia some two months later, a long trip, and he gets there and he's going to be an evangelist, they all know, yeah, we saw him get baptized. 
It was an external right, of course, but it meant something internal to him. Now, I've got to say something about verse 37, because it does not appear in the earliest and the best Greek manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. It appears that it was added later. There's a brand, and a, a brand of manuscripts called the Western Text that when their scribes were unsure of a reading, what they would do is not delete something, but they would add to it just in case it was in the original. And so there's a, a, a brand of text called the Western Text that tends to do that, to add in little scribal notes. The earliest and the best manuscripts do not have this contained in it. And that's just a fact. And so scholars that are trying to understand what was in the original believe that this was added later. And I agree with them. I believe this was added later. It makes a lot of sense that this was added later. It gives us a little bit of an insight into how the early church handled baptism. They looked at this story of the Ethiopian eunuch and they felt they needed to insert in his mouth some of the kind of confession that would be found when they would ask people at the baptismal waters, have you believed in Christ with all of your heart or have you believed in Jesus as the Son of God? And so this is valuable to us in understanding some of the formulas that the early church used when they were actually baptizing their candidates. But was it in the original? No. Does it make a big difference? No, it does not. Because the implication that someone must believe in Jesus Christ clearly with a sincere heart, is there in the presentation of the gospel and is, is there in Acts chapter 2 and other portions of Scripture. Sometimes when believers hear about the fact that there are manuscript differences, it really hurts their faith. So I want to say this to you. There are differences in manuscripts and the copies of manuscripts. That's just a fact. In fact, there are many, many differences. I want you to hear that from me before you go out there and try to evangelize and someone says, which Bible? They're all changed. There's all these different manuscripts. And then they'll be saying something to you that is a tremendous exaggeration and is not true. Are there variations in some of the manuscripts? Of course there are. There were thousands of these Greek manuscripts that were copied all over the Mediterranean world, different centuries, and just like any human process, as they carefully tried to write it down, once in a while their eye would skip a word or their eye would glance down a line and they would skip a line or repeat a line or misspell a name. And so 99 plus percent of all of these variants that are in these manuscripts mean absolutely nothing. They're very easy to see where they did that by comparing manuscript to manuscript, and it's very easy to see in the vast majority of these cases why some of these were not in the original. It's very easy. To, it's very easy. It's a scientific process, and even someone who's not a Christian at all can do this and reproduce what was in the original because we have so many of these copies. Once in a while, and this is one of the cases, it's a little bit less obvious. And so you'll see in the better translations something that will be bracketed and you'll see a little footnote in there. Don't let that hurt your faith. That just means they have a hard time determining whether or not this one was in the original or wasn't in the original and you'll have different scholars that will agree or disagree on that. Here's the good news. If you take our courses in, uh, in our Bible Institute, we'll get into this in great detail. The good news is that it doesn't change the meaning of the passage. It doesn't change the meaning of any passage. In fact, you can go throughout all these manuscript differences throughout the entire New Testament, and you'll be hard-pressed to find even one passage where the meaning is greatly changed. Maybe 1 John chapter 5. That would be one spot. 
But in, in all the other cases where you have these slight little variations, God, through the process of preserving the scriptures, made sure that not only was the New Testament preserved into the Middle Ages and then into the modern age, not only was the Bible preserved, but it is the best preserved book of all time. There is no other ancient book, which, by the way, the other scholars always quote, there is no other ancient book that has been better preserved than the Bible. The Bible is the best preserved ancient book by far. It's not even close. And not only that, I'll take it a step further and say there is no major Christian doctrine that you and I believe that is ever affected by any of these variants. No, I will take it a step further and say there is no minor doctrine that you and I believe that is ever affected by any of these variants. That's how accurately, amazingly accurately, the New Testament was copied and was preserved to us. I wanted you to hear that from me so that someone doesn't go out there and say, well, we don't know what the Bible said originally because look at all these, these variants in these manuscripts. That is just not true. We do know what was in the originals. We have a very, very high confidence that, we, confidence that we know what was in these originals. Now, we're going to end with asking ourselves what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, in the book of Acts, we're not told any more about him except that he rejoiced. The rejoicing is the natural response to the believing. He heard, he believed, he was baptized, he rejoiced. And then, as far as we know, he did what? He went home. He went home. And what did he do at home? We don't know. <laughs> the church father, Irenaeus, in his work called Against Heresies, mentioned that the Ethiopian became an evangelist to his home country. How did he know that? We don't know. Eusebius, in his ecclesiastical history, mentions the same. How did he know that? We don't know. Archaeology confirms that a Christian community was established by the 5th century in Ethiopia. There are books out right now that argue that Ethiopia actually was the first Christian nation. They're trying to, they're trying to beat out Armenia, because Armenia claims to be the first Christian nation, but they believe there's evidence to show that Ethiopia was the first official first Christian nation in the world. I haven't read the book, so I can't tell you if it's true or not. But it's being debated. Early on, Christianity came to Ethiopia. Did this man have something to do with it? I think he did. I think that was the, the purpose of including it in the book of Acts, that there was a brand new area that was being opened up to the gospel. Um, but either way, we see the sovereign action of the Holy Spirit in evangelism here. In this man's life, and then in the last snatching Philip from that spot. Imagine they come up out of the waters of baptism and it says the Spirit snatched him away. What does that mean, Pastor Leek? It means the Spirit snatched him away. <laughs> yeah, but how did that happen? I don't know. This is before a Star Trek had the transporter. I don't know. He just was zapped and he was placed some 20 miles. He was, it says he was found there. Found there. I mean, what that means is he kind of was like, I'm here now. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 12, 2. He's boasting about a man. He's actually boasting about himself, but he doesn't want to mention his name because he doesn't want to boast about himself because he's trying to show humility. And he says, I know a man who was snatched, whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not really quite sure, but he saw the third heaven. And he goes on to talk about the visions that he saw. And he's engaging in a little bit of foolish boasting to beat the Corinthians at their game to teach them a lesson. Anyways, that's a longer story. But basically the same word is used of him that he was snatched. 
Same word is used of the, of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. I always wanted to go up in the rapture. It's been like a life goal of mine. You have a bucket list, I got a bucket list. Mine is to go up in the rapture. I want to be snatched, and I want to go up, and I want to go up flying high. And like that Christian comedian, I want to grab a sinner in both hands on the way up. I want to ask him whether they're going to repent or whether I let go. And that's the way it's going to be. I want to go up in a rapture. I really do. I would love to be there and to see the Lord like that. I don't know if the Lord has that in store with me or not. But that same, same verb, caught up, is what is used of, of Philip right here. And he was caught up. If you want more on this, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 12, talks about how the Spirit lifted me up and took me somewhere. It's just amazing. Did the Spirit of God do that? Yes, he did. And that goes to the third movement that we don't even have time to talk about. And that's verse 40. Philip found himself at Azotus. And he passed through. He kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. These are the coastal cities. And the third movement of the gospel is here. And I'll pick up on this next time. But basically now the coastal cities are beginning to hear about the gospel as well. And guess who is the man that's opening the door for this evangelism? Again, the Holy Spirit decided he was going to use this faithful Greek Hellenistic believer called Philip. Later, Peter will come into this very region and we'll hear about Cornelius being uh, evangelized and the gospel going to the Gentiles. But who laid the seed work for this before Peter even got there? And the answer is Philip the evangelist. Praise God for this man. Praise God that he was able to look beyond cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, and he saw what the gospel was even before the other apostles did. The Holy Spirit used this man to break down barriers and bring the gospel elsewhere. And that's what I wanted to close with, and that is that God can use you to break down barriers as well. You think there's somebody out there and they're not going to listen to the gospel, God might use you. It's amazing how countries like India and China and other places and even Muslim countries are being opened up by that special somebody that says, look, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm going to bring the gospel there. And that might be you. That might be you into some subculture here in the U.S. That might be you into some, some neighborhood that's there. God might use you. God might just be moving in your heart to bring the gospel like this guy Philip. Amazing what he was able to do. May God give us more Philips, the evangelists. Father in heaven, we would just pray that you help us be better evangelists and never be ashamed of the gospel of our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but always rejoice in the cross and remember the death of Christ as we're going to the table now to be around this table and remember your son. Help us when we walk out of here to bear the name Christ with no shame at all and to love our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.